This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is June 28th, 2022. Please tell us your name and the year you began at Hofstra Radio. <laughs> Hi, Brian. This is like, I feel like mystery guest here on the old uh, television show. Uh, my name is Bruce Avery. It has been my honor to be the general manager of Radio Hofstra University since January 4th, 1994. Now, the last time we spoke for volume one of this interview series, this being volume two, possibly more, uh, we spoke in August of 2021. And some things have changed since that time. What's going on? Um. This I'm trying to keep this time sensitive because as of September 1st of 2022, I will be officially retired. I am going to fulfill my contract uh, through August 31st of 2022. And at that point, um, there will be a new management team here at Radio Hostel University, WRHU. Um, I very much am going to remain an active friend of the station. I'm not sure what context that will look like, whether it's a member of the Alumni Association or just a, a person that pops in every so often as a community volunteer, but it has been an extraordinary journey here um, when I have been uh, the second full-time general manager of the history of Radio Austin University and only the third that ever had that because we had an interim person in Suziza that was Jeff Krause and myself who were the full-time people. Hmm. So in the over 60-year history of the station, um, that's pretty incredible that you've had uh, such a small number of leaders and such magnitude of what the station has done. But I am coming to the end of my journey, and if this is playing before September, <laughs> it will be coming up. If it's playing after September, then I have already retired. Okay. Now, I think we talked about this in our first interview, is that when I was the station manager in 93 and 94, when you came aboard, one of the things that not knowing you, not having any, any interaction with you before you got hired, a lot of us as students and community volunteers thought, well, is this guy going to stick around? <laughs> you know, we didn't yeah. know what we didn't know what to expect. Now, now thinking about that now, and as 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 we as we laugh about it, when you started, did you have a ballpark idea of how long you thought you might be in this gig, or how long you would want to be in this gig? Um, well, I didn't have a hard number, Brian, um, because you never know, right? But there was something that um, I, I not only saw but felt was that this job was a career job. Mm -hmm. It literally was the opportunity of a lifetime because uh, Hofstra and Radio Hofstra University and WRHU had the bones of everything of power in, and, and, and right in this industry of non-commercial educational radio. What it needed was it needed to have a person that recognized that, respected it, and had the skill set and the luck to actually take that in all the different directions that it could be taken to the magnitude of what it can, what could be achieved. And 
um, looking back at the journey of since 94, um, the, the vision and the feeling that I had the, of the potential of what was here, um, based upon results has been achieved in even far greater magnitude than I ever had hoped or anticipated. So as I stayed here and things grew and, and we went in directions that I never saw as a possibility, but was the right thing to do, and also worked on things that I had seen as a possibility, um, then uh, which reached uh, reached levels that, as I mentioned, it, it's just, it's, I'm incredibly grateful and humbled as to what has transpired and the hundreds to thousands of people, audience members, uh, students, uh, community members, the university that have been part of this um, in, in either a very active way or at least a tangential way. When we spoke about your early days at the station, I remember you made a very concerted effort to speak to everyone and have an interview with everyone. And you made it a point that you were Bruce. You weren't Mr. Avery or Professor Avery or, you know, Commandant or anything like that, that you were Bruce. And I feel like that that was you trying to set a tone and create a relationship, like you said, with the students, with the community volunteers, with the alumni. Could you talk a little bit about that as, as a mindset, as, as part of your uh, strategy of, of coming into the station? Um, it, is, it is who I am and a management style and belief that has developed over the years and the various things I've done that... Um, listening to people with good ideas and supporting them as much as you can not only brings great ideas to the operation of, of, of whatever you're doing, but it also gains trust and inclusiveness. And um, as an example, I one of the reasons I saw this as a career job is that um, Radio Hofstra University, HCH, VHC, and then RHU was a legendary station well before I came here. And, um, and my goal was to uh, become part of that and integrate what was working and then potentially identify and work on things that could be uh, taken in, in other directions and improved. And so the best way to do that was to listen to what everybody had to say and incorporate it. And um, clearly there were things that were ideas that, that, that I didn't have that were working tremendously for being here at Hofstra. And I had some ideas on my own. So I wanted to hear what everybody had to say. And at the same time frame, let the folks know where I was coming from with my ideas. And then at the end of it, we got together and, you know, a goodly amount of my ideas got incorporated and a goodly amount of the, the stuff that was already in place here was working better than anything that I could come up with. So mm. you know, it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so what it became was it became a launching pad based upon trust and also uh, a belief of multiple people that 
that it, that people could have ideas, could put them into the process, and not everything was going to get approved. But in, they they knew that if they made a good case and it was a good solid thing and it was legal and it could be it could be funded, that they could put it in and they could come back five years, ten years. 25 years later and say that was the part of this station that I helped put into motion and could take pride that that particular thing was still part of the day-to-day operations of Radio Hofstra University. I think it was a comment or, or uh, an email exchange I was having it with, I think it was Mike V, Mike Versaletto. And he, he threw out a phrase um, it's not, it's not unique, but he, he definitely pointed it out and said that, that you were trying to create an environment of mutual respect. Um, it is one of the standards. Um, it comes from the golden rule, but it comes, it's one of the standards of, in my opinion, of how, uh, a top quality working environment operates. And if you have that environment, you have a chance to um, reward excellence and also make mistakes without the fear of uh, of the real fear of active hostility. Hmm. You're going to make mistakes. People are going to make mistakes as long as it doesn't get amplified by word or action, and you have an opportunity to go in, sort out the details, and then sometimes say, look, we got to stick with this particular thing, and sometimes say, guess what? We messed up. How can we fix this? People can learn to live with that and trust it and, and be open and bring all of their talents to the arena. We are a non-commercial educational radio station. And now far more than a radio station, we do television, we do digital connectivity, everything else. But the foundation of it is WRHU-FM and many other things now. And the folks that are attracted to a non-commercial educational community radio station have all sorts of different backgrounds and interests. We have 48 different programming formats, and that's just the start. Everything from hip hop to polka, everything from uh, uh, poetry to uh, to um, uh, stories of of your daily news, all those different spectrum of different musical styles, all these different things. And when you get together uh, outside of the studio, which usually has a person or two, and you get in the entire staff in one room at one time, you're talking several hundred people all from different backgrounds, all with different wants, all with different areas of passion and interest. And then to create an environment where people know they can speak their mind and, 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 and stand up for their uh, values without fear of retribution and ridicule, then what happens is you have this incredible creative stew. And, and the foundation of that is the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But it's an environment of mutual respect, which anticipates the fact that in a creative environment, you're going to have people that are passionate. And in a passionate, creative environment, you often can have uh, folks that uh, are animated about something. You don't want it to get past creative animation into something that can't be fixed. Throughout these interviews i've talked to people who were at the station in the 1960s and and ever since then 
And a commonality is that so many of us showed up at the station and found a home away from home, oftentimes that we were not expecting. Uh, some people walked in wanting to be the next, uh, you know, Yankees play-by-play guy or or to be, you know, a top 40 DJ or whatever it might be. And then others of us just walked in and went, oh, there's a bunch of weirdos and misfits here. I like this. I want to <laughs> hang out here. And there's, there's so many contrasting ideas. And then culturally, in the time that you've been at Hofstra Radio, things have changed a lot. And, and another note that I got, this might have been from John Santucci, was about supporting a vibe or a mood in the office where, again, you've got this bunch of misfits who are finding a home and finding their way as adults. And then you've got these hyper-focused folk people who are, you know, ready for a career and then community volunteers, so on and so forth. Can you think of anything in particular or, or any ideas or ways that, that you as the general manager helped sort of foster that balance and gave some guidance to these many different kinds of people coming together in this, in this one special place. Um, there's so many parts to the answer to that, Brian, you've identified one of them already, um, which is, uh, I have always in this arena been Bruce. And often folks come into any business, uh, higher education being one of those, where someone goes by Professor Avery or Mr. Avery or whatever honorific you want to give them, and they're creating artificial distance between themselves and the folks that are coming there to interact. And... I've always been of the belief that um, folks can trust you for who you are, not for the name you give them. You don't need that artificial distance. And part of that was developed at the different places I'd gone to over the years where I realized it's just an eye blink between meeting people at the, uh, at the initial uh, recruitment event and as they come in, sometimes even in their senior year of high school, before they're even here as a first-year student, and, and, and the time frame that they are graduating and then into their entry-level jobs and then into their full-blossoming professional career, it's an eye blink. Hmm. And if it's a situation where there's a mentor-mentee relationship between Bruce and whoever it is, and I don't want to refer to myself in the, in the third person here. I'm doing this as an example. Go ahead. Of, You've been here uh, 29 years. You can do it. It's fine. <laughs> as, an, as, a, as a management style. And I believe that um, when that eye blink changes from mentor, mentee, to colleague, to friend, to, to a trusted uh, confidant, and it has happened I'm honored to say dozens to hundreds of times that um, I'm still communicating with the folks as Bruce and they are Brian and they are Michael and, and they are John. I'm trying to remember the other folks that you mentioned and that's the relationship. And it starts there because it's in a mutual respect about the adult 
status of people that come in to higher education uh, over 18 years old. They're in, they're there to, and they're paying big money, regardless of where they are, to go and get an opportunity to grow. But at the same time frame, they are adults and um, and are to be respected. And and part of the reason I'm attracted to this particular area is, I don't know if you and I ever talked about this, is because, you know, when I was in, in college, I was in the era of the Vietnam War, and the draft was there, and it was a, a real uh, reality that um, you could get drafted and and go into this mess, and and yet people were still thinking of you as a, as a not even a young man, but as a as a college student, or you know you you know you need a little bit more seasoning, and the in, in the inequity between those two things about the reality of what was going on in the eighteen and nineteen year old lives versus the way that people looked at them as kids, um, or maybe a little bit more than kids, it it it, it was a, a real issue of being able to have voice at that time. And campus radio was one of those places that gave voice to folks that didn't seem to be able to be heard. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons that I love this environment. And then one of the reasons I have been, I've made a career out of nurturing that is it's because of, it's a place where people can, can have their voice and learn the power of having their voice and learn how to maximize sharing that voice. So the things that they are passionate about, they can do it here and outside of here and then go up and be upstanders in their lives and their communities. And, and that, that is an incredibly important thing. I mean, Brian, you think about this and I mentioned this a lot now. I don't know if I mentioned this a lot when, when you and I were together in, in the station itself, but over the course of time, I've come to realize that you know, Fortune 500 companies and, and mega conglomerates around the world spend billions of dollars a year trying to think about how young people think. Hmm. Billions of dollars. And we are, in this particular arena, what young people think. And we're giving them voice. And that's a really, really rare thing. And it's a wonderful thing. Uh, About a week or two before our conversation here, I interviewed Tracy Scott, who's Tracy Preston now. And she related a particular, not, it's not a particular story. And, and, and I'm sure we could go through all the list of station managers and program directors you've worked with, and you can <laughs> recall stories about each, but I remember Tracy saying that she was the music director and then, um, she was chosen as program director for, I guess, what would have been her, her senior year or her final year. And she had this feeling of, I don't know if I'm ready for this. I don't know if, you know, they made the right decision. And she related that you had a conversation with her and you said, well, you've been preparing for this. We've been having conversations. You've been doing things to prepare you to be the program director of this station. This has been very deliberate. This has been part of a process that maybe you weren't aware of. And she, you know, her honest assessment was, I didn't know that I was being 
prepared for this bigger job. I was just enjoying being part of the station and, and finding a voice and finding an outlet for my interests. Is that is that something that, whether with Tracy or anybody else, that you could identify people and go, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this student an opportunity, or I'm gonna give them a test, or I'm gonna give them a situation and see, you know, if they can fly. Can you think of other things, or or Tracy in particular, you know, to address that? Um. It absolutely is a conscious approach um, that is part of my philosophy as a, a leader in this particular arena, because this particular arena is incredibly unique um, in the fact that it isn't just the core managers here. Um, this is true for every person that comes into this particular station and arena they can have an opportunity to um, and a, a person that doesn't want a management job, just is interested in doing their show and, and exploring their own abilities as an announcer, as a DJ, as a production person, um, and not really hold a management position. They still can learn um, and get confidence in their ability to thrive in a corporate and a semi-corporate arena. They can come up with ideas, they can pitch the ideas, they can research it, they can respond to criticism and feedback, and then they can go and, and, and take it and, 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 and demonstrate it so that it becomes often part of the permanent uh, legacy of the station. Um, and, uh, uh, and they can come back 20, 25 years later and say that particular technique that we're using is something that I help implement when I did my show on the Rock and Roll Oasis or something along those lines. And one of the most incredible and rare things about being in a non-commercial educational radio and now digital environment is that folks can develop style and, and, and have it so that when they leave here, that they can have confidence in their abilities to express themselves in their personal and professional life. They get opportunity, and they get opportunity also to develop confidence, which can stand in their own lives, but equally as important, they can be upstanders in the community and, and affect many, many people's lives. That's one of the rare and really powerful parts about being involved in a campus media and this type of an arena. You mentioned before about the campus vibe. And um, the, there are three things that any college media arena can do. One is pre-professional development. You can run a newspaper and have an opportunity for people to, to polish their skills in terms of making an article, doing research. Uh, the second area is community service. If you're a, a, a blog at a campus, you're reaching out to the community and you're, you're presenting yourself and your ideas to the world um, about what you think is important. Uh, so it's also true for a newspaper. It's also true for a television station. And it's definitely true for a community radio station. But the third thing that any campus media outlet can do is that it can be what I always call the campus vibe. 
It's a place where you connect with people. And while you're doing the other two things, you're serving community, you're polishing your skills, you're also developing relationships and trying out things where you can get feedback from your peers. And oftentimes that becomes the feedback that you seek out for the rest of your life from the people that you have gone through this time frame together. You have developed a trust. In your case, I'll mention Jen and Todd and Will and, 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 and I would mention others, but just say that, that if you had an idea of something, you could go to those three and say, look, I think I have a really good idea. What do you think? And in the case of Jen and Todd, <laughs> Jen may say one thing, Todd may say another, but you're getting honest feedback. And, and, and as you get into the uh, professional world more and more, that's one of the rarest things that you can get. Because if you're good, oftentimes people don't want to tell you what you're doing well because then they either have to promote you or pay you more money. And if you're not doing well, they don't want to tell you because you know, they want you to improve on your own or they may have to be getting rid of you and they don't want to have litigation. So you're out there and somebody, something happens, whatever, uh, six months, two years later, you're sort of in the, in the dark. And what happened? Because you haven't got feedback. The people that you meet in this particular uh, area are often the folks that can give you that type of feedback that you can't get anywhere else. And so over the years, I've nurtured that type of thing where as people grew here, I would try to talk to them and say, and when they say, I don't think I can do this, I would say to them, well, um, other folks do because you've earned this. You are being offered this. Now let's break that down. Why do you think that you have earned this? What have you done specifically that other people have seen in you, the strength to do this particular idea, the fact that you finish, um, uh, you come up with ideas and you reach conclusion with those, the fact that other people respect you and turn to you for questions to find answers. Let's break this down as to what you're doing to a point where uh, not only I believe that you can handle this, but other folks are seeing this and I'm inviting you to see this through their eyes and my eyes. And so I've had, I've had a lot of different conversations like that over the years in all the different places, not just here at Hofstra, but in the different jobs I've had where folks have found that they can become empowered. Folks have found that they can become empowered by this area and their own uh, successes so that when they leave here, they can have confidence that they can fight through the uh, commercial world and the, and, the, and, the, and the sometimes strange roads that one travels in a personal and professional mm. life. You're talking primarily about advising and, and teaching and mentoring relatively young adults in their late teens and their early 20s. But when you happened upon Hofstra Radio, you were a relatively young man. And I'm wondering if you can think back, and I say that jokingly, being older now than you were then, but there we go. Um, was there someone who gave you advice or someone that you turned to, and this could be at any point in your career, that said, you know, we want you to think about doing things this way, or what about this, or someone who gave you advice or guidance that, that helped you develop into the general manager that you became? 
Oh, there have been lots of folks. Um, a couple of, of specific people to mention, um, uh, Dr. Herman Berliner, who was the provost for years, and uh, Dr. Silvia Gialombardo, who was uh, the associate provost and the, and the, and the interim uh, first uh, dean of the fledgling School of Communication. Both of them were incredibly, uh, both of them were incredibly uh, um, competent and open people who um, were a person that put you through really defending your ideas. But if you defended your ideas and, and they listened and bought into what you were saying, they then backed you as far as they could possibly back you. Whether or not that was, uh, growth comes from educated risk. And there's only one way to grow anything is occasionally you have to uh, stop planning and start acting. Hmm. We didn't have a training class until you and, and Dave Koenig and, and, a, and a few other people start putting together a training class. And now at Radio Hofstra University, the training class is part of the culture of this arena where folks that come through it have a rite of passage. And sometimes that rite of passage includes a community volunteer or two where a folks sit through a training class to become part of the station. They go, they graduate, they go out and become their lives. They come back with their, you know, their own jobs and their, and their own families. And they come back and they find that Basha is still doing her show. And, 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 and the person gets to say, I went through the training class with Basha. There's a sense of continuity to all that where it's, it becomes part of the culture. But those ideas were, controversial and the backing and the and the wisdom of those two um you know really helped me uh, uh listen and 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 say you know that's something i want to make a stand on and there's something else that i don't um another person that has to be mentioned is uh, uh a few years later we had this person that came and gave a workshop at the station and um and, and the person just absolutely held the court. I was watching the reaction of the oh, 25 or 30 students that were in the room where they were just absolutely riveted by the excellence of what this person was saying and also the way it was being said. And as I left the room, the then station manager, Paul Cardella, said to me, what do we have to do to get this guy to come here more mm. regularly? And at the same time frame, the guy said to me, and I said to him, I said, what are you going to be doing? He said, well, I'm retiring from CBS. And, you know, St. John's, my alumna, my, uh, my alma mater has approached me to come and develop a, a, a radio arena. I said, listen, I think I might have a better idea. Um, let me go talk. Let me go talk to the uh, to the uh, administration, see if there's a way that we can bring you on here, at least as a, you know, some kind of a, a, a guest lecturer or something. And Ed Angelos came on and was a professional in residence here for nearly 25 years that I was here. And, and, and he had two Hall of Fame careers. One is a broadcaster and, um, and doing some incredible things, interviewing uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, doing uh, you know, Jets play-by-play, -play doing a couple of Super Bowls, you know, all these different things that Ed did. But Ed was a, 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 a Hall of Fame broadcaster, but he was an even better person, a better human being. And, and while 
we would have uh, executive board meetings and we would have uh, all staff meetings and we would have mentoring get togethers and we would have the different things that you do around here, the, the, uh, the performance coaching and everything else. Um, I was learning from Ed about, um, a, a, about how one can be incredibly uh, accomplished and talented and yet um, also be um, known for um, who he was as opposed to what he has accomplished. And I learned from him every day that he was here. And, and one of the things that I learned from Ed that, that I can openly say and that many, many other people have gained from Ed is that you can be really good at what you do and still be a really nice human mm. being. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to be the, the panther in the room to get to be a, an accomplished professional. And in fact, um, just the opposite. You can really be a, a, a small and large world changer by going out and date consistently showing that you can excel. And at the same time frame, people want to be around you. They don't want to walk out of the room when you come into it. And so those are three people, uh, uh, Herman, Dr. Berliner, and, and Sylvia, Dr. Gian Lombardo, and Ed that come to mind that have been mentors while I'm here. But there are literally, you know, there are dozens and hundreds of other people that, um, um, that are the same thing. My, my wife, Veronica, my wife, Veronica, um, is, has been an inspiration to me because she is, uh, she is a person um, that is absolutely fantastic at multiple things. She, 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 she sculpts, she dances, she, she um, uh, has all, all sorts of creative outlets that she excels at. And at the same time frame, she is a person that um, has very exacting standards about taking care of the details in order so that the stuff that uh, you do with a creative idea can actually not only reach fruition and success, it can stay successful because the details, as, as, as you minimize the opportunity of it falling apart like a house of cards. I mean, there are so many folks along the way that have been inspirations to me. And Brian, I'll add one thing to that. And this is not something that's an add-on. This is actually a highlight. Being around the student population of WRHU has moved, touched, and inspired me over and over and over and over mm -hmm. again. May I share one anecdote with you? I mean, there are, there are hundreds, but may I, may that, I share that one is, That is what we're here for. Anecdote away. Um, I was sitting in my office and, and looked up, and, and this person was in my office door, in a very ill-fitting suit, <laughs> carrying a briefcase. <laughs> and, and I looked up, and this was a person that I had never seen outside of a, you know, a sweatshirt and a pair of jeans. <laughs> and I'm looking at, at, the, and, at the person, and I'm saying, what is going on? <laughs> and, and I was really trying not to laugh, because you know it was clear that the person had come to the office to speak about something that they were really feeling was important. But at the same time frame, they had dressed up in a way that I had never mm. seen before. And, and I said, okay, you know, what is it? And, it? and, and the person said, I have an idea. And I said, great. You know, we always have listened to ideas. I mean, and he pulled out of his briefcase. He, he pulled out 
uh, research uh, uh, project on how to maximize the flow of the multiple programs that we have here at the station between the block formats and the specialty shows so that we can create a flow that makes sense to the audience, but at the same time can put these shows at times where they can maximize potential listening uh, for the audience. And the thing was bloody brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. And uh, uh, the, the, the person... Um, uh, was became the music director, and 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 then left here and was a a, a, a roadie and a musician and an enterprising uh, person that um, actually now owns multiple properties as a handy person and 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 that type of thing, but he's now the head of engineering at Salem Broadcasting, and also happens to be, uh, uh, 15, 18 years later, the chief engineer at WRHU, his name is Andy mm. Gladding. And, and, and what he did in that time from where he walked in here is his ideas were so well thought out and so brilliant that we made, in the time frame I've been here, the nearly three decades, there have probably been four significant programmatic changes not not just an individual show but a complete retrofit of the of the broadcast week his was one of them and that was probably 20 years ago now and and that basic format is still in place and it has enough flexibility that it can add on smaller things and at the same time frame it maximizes what audiences can do he had a vision. He did the research. He came in. He pitched his idea, and and it was brilliant. And it has been one of the standards of the station forever. And and he had an opportunity to get his uh, the knowledge that his ideas had merit and beyond merit were could be successfully launched. It helped set him up. And at the same time frame, it it was one of those things that it was just I will never forget the juxtaposition between the uncomfort mm. of him coming through the door, you know, feeling like he had to put on a, a coat and a tie and, and, and then the sheer brilliance of the idea. And there have, there have been dozens and hundreds of examples like that, but that's the one that I can close my eyes and still see the person, Andy Gladding standing in the doorway. And he and I have talked about that many times since he he's recently started something here at, at Radio Hofstra university, which is just, a phenomenal because he's working with the SBE, the Society of Broadcast Engineers, where they're coming out with guests all the time from the city. Anyway, every Thursday night we have Tech Thursday mm -hmm. here now, and you know, and we have about 25 to 30 students that show up every week uh, to get trained in in soldering or or taking out uh, circuit boards or 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 routing stuff, and you know. You and I both know that tech wasn't always the thing that attracted the most people, but this is now uh, something that people are having fun at, and at the same time frame, they're setting themselves up in many cases for leaving here, where there's such a dearth of broadcast engineers, that they can find jobs in the tens of thousands of dollars even before they graduate. Yeah. And why, why is that? It's because the opportunity was there and because the vision was there, and a person had a chance to find out that his ideas mattered. In my conversation with Andy about his early days at the station, I mean, he really consistently expressed his 
love of radio and his love of broadcasting and the opportunity. So, so as you're telling that story, I'm flashing back to that and just getting that sense of positive energy uh, that you get from him. I wonder, I'll have to ask him in a separate interview about the wearing of the suit. He may deny that, but I'm sure that the rest of it will, <laughs> will pan out. And I want, don't forget the briefcase. The briefcase, don't forget the briefcase. The briefcase I can see the suit. I, I don't know, but I want to double back to a couple of other things that you said, um, talking about your wife, Veronica, and I, I don't know her personally, but I imagine she's got a vast reservoir of patience. I don't know if you I don't know if you mentioned that, but that's I, I, I want to put that out there. And another thing I want to double back to is that you mentioned, and this this speaks to you as an educator, as a mentor, as a member of the community, is that in that story of talking about Ed Ingalls, who has had such an impact on so many lives, and you could spend literal days telling Ed Ingalls stories, that you took a moment to make sure that you recognize that Paul Cordella as an undergraduate came to you and said, this guy's something else. We got to, we got to make sure he's that's to me, that's so important in understanding the history and the community and your role at the station is that you, again, you're picking out these moments and saying this individual, this person made this impact or made this comment or made a suggestion that was so impactful. And I think I think that's a real tribute to your your time here and and your understanding of how to work with the students and with the community. So I just I just want to make sure I, I, I recognize that because that really stood out to me in the moment. Um, Brian, uh, a lot of times people discount uh, folks because of age. They can't possibly know what they're talking about. It's an easy out to dismiss people. You know, yeah. Come back to me when you've had a right. chance to, 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 to grow a little. Good ideas don't matter with what age they come from. It, they, it just right. doesn't. Uh, idea and excellent ideas and excellence is timeless. You can have them when you're five. You can have them when you're ninety-five. And and. This particular environment, now called WRHU, but I'm going to call it Radio Austin University because it is what it is. It's the history of this whole arena. It has been a place where people have been able to find themselves and give, and give voice. And, and so listening to the folks here not only gives an opportunity for uh, opportunity and nurturing great ideas into actuality, it also is a is part of the, the 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 foundation of campus radio. Campus radio has always been ahead of its time in terms of uh, being in touch with where the world is musically. That's that that that's that's absolutely impossible to debate. But it's more it's more than musically. It's also socially. You have an opportunity in a place like this to have folks. Of generally between 18 and 22 years old to say what's on their mind and then do something about it, whatever that happens to be. And, and that's, that literally is priceless. And so folks that work in this arena it, it, it often respect the arena enough to listen very carefully as to what's going on because it, it, it becomes the next new great idea 
and then you and I mm-hmm. both know this that it, in in terms of radio, it's awfully uh, often stolen by mm-hmm. commercial radio because we have demonstrated the viability of rock and roll, and then new, and then and then uh, whatever new genre it happens to be, hip hop, uh, and 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 on and on, uh, you know, rock country, and uh, the different the different places and the different times and different spaces. But it comes because you're current, because the the group that's there and the core of what it is, they're current. They're they're coming out into the world with ideas and and new expressions and new technologies to deliver it, and it's that's what was one of the things that makes this so uh, wonderful and exciting is that people can learn about themselves that they can they can take that and, and make it a thing matter. Um, it uh, it. it it's remembering um, and listening and respecting who is coming up with the ideas is is part of what, in my opinion, should happen in this particular uh, in this particular place. And it's one of the things that I prided myself and made as a standard um, for being in this uh, in, in in this role is that you have two ears and one mouth. Hmm. You listen, and then you marinate, and then you speak. Would that it were always so. <laughs> uh, but but in, in the educational sense, uh, absolutely. I, 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 I've been wanting to jump back to something that you were talking about earlier, and we've, we've talked about particular instances throughout. But you were talking about the context of yourself as an undergraduate during the time of the Vietnam War. And, and you've been with Hofstra Radio for, for quite some time, for 29 years. And, and things have happened and things have changed in this world. And I, I'm sure you have particular moments that you can pick out as, as world events, as important events for the station and, and individually. But I wanted to go back through some of the years and, and throw out some events or some things and, and how those may have affected your decisions or actions as general manager and how they may have affected the station. Because again, it's, it's over a long period of time. And, and now myself being an educator, working with high school students. And at the time I was working in, in, in radio, I was working for Metro traffic, but I, I, I definitely recall my feelings hearing about, the shooting at Columbine High School and that Columbine has become now a, a, a fixture in American society um, as, as the first uh, of these deadly mass shootings. And I remember my reaction and at the time as a broadcaster and now thinking back as an educator. And that's, that's something that's beyond anything that you can immediately prepare for as an educator, as the general manager of Hofstra Radio. Is, is that an event or is that something that, that uh, informed the way that Hofstra Radio operated? Uh, thinking about safety, thinking about the role of the station in the community. Was there any, any way that that informed things that were going on? Um, that and many other um things that have come up. Um, one of the, one of the truths that, um, that I have come to not only 
recognize but also love about uh, campus radio is that the idea of the home away from home when something catastrophic has gone on, sometimes catastrophic bad and sometimes, I don't want to use the word catastrophic, but significantly uplifting has gone on. Folks go to the station. They go to the station because they want to, um, they want to participate in history in some way that's more than sitting and watching it or listening right. to it. They want to participate in it. And school shootings, 9-11, um, uh, when uh, the first African-American president was uh, elected and then, and then uh, sworn in, um, there, there were moments, and, and I could go on and on and on, uh, storms that crippled uh, uh, Long Island. Um, uh, just recently, with some decisions made by the Supreme Court, uh, in, uh, I, 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 again, we live through history. And, and often what happens is that the folks come to the station to participate in history. And as they participate in history, they, they, they are serving audiences. They're learning about uh, being upstanders as citizens, whether or not they go into broadcast careers, but about you know, going to a place where they can enact change. You mentioned being an educator. Um, part of being an upstander that, that, that I'm sure has been part of your um, yeah, part of your um, polishing into who you are now came from the fact that you covered and did and 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 monitored stuff that was going on while you were here in a university setting and not only monitor it but you actively shared your viewpoint on it and 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 that is um, something that uh, stands with everybody because one is you have to be ever vigilant. Mm -hmm. uh, 9-11, a, a classic awakening about how vigilant one has to be. Uh, about if you, if you see something, say something. Uh, people were changed forever about if they just saw something, a package left on a subway platform. People don't leave it mm -hmm. there anymore. They, they basically identify it. And people leave stuff all the time. They leave pocketbooks, they leave knapsacks, leave other types of things. But people don't, don't you, you, people speak up nowadays, you know, within, within a short period of time. And it's the, the same things in terms of, 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 of schools. Now, we're not necessarily seeing the results that we want to see because these things are not only happening, but they seem to be happening with more frequency. Um, however, what is happening is that, that other people are being saved that we don't necessarily hear about as much because people are now, uh, now uh, being observant and, and taking hmm. action. And we don't often hear about the ones that didn't happen, and there's a lot of them. And, and, and also... You know, and, and as part of the station, we have been through 
so many of these things in my time frame here and beyond as the industry. I mean, it, it, I mean, if if you and I did a show, we could do a show on disaster mm -hmm. coverage. Yep. Just a, and and that show would be uh, would be. I'll give you an example. Lee Harris, who's in our Hall of Fame, has been the morning drive time anchor for uh, WINS, arguably the number one uh, uh, news radio station in the world. He's been the morning drive time person for, I believe, going on 30 years. When, when folks uh, have conversations about 9-11, uh, they often play Lee's um, cast on winds in the background and in the mm -hmm. foreground of his coverage of what was going on. And by the way, that's one of the things that we have going here at Radio Hofstra University is Lee comes out here three or four times a year and talks to the students. And, and you're talking about one of the best of all times that have been through some of the toughest of our lives, including, including these, you know, the, uh, it, you know, the one that really affected me personally was uh, Newtown from yeah. Connecticut um, because I lived in Connecticut for a long time and I didn't live in that town, but I was very familiar with it. And, and that was, it was crushing. And, and, there, you know, and there are so, unfortunately, so many of these things that folks have to digest and live with but one of the things that has helped many people that, that participate in places like Radio Hofstra University is it gives them a place to make sense out of the senseless. Yeah, I think that's kind of what I was hoping to, to lead to because, again, going back to Paul Cordella and my time at the station, I remember the first time I was ever on the air, I was re reading an AP News story about Scud missiles and attacks on Israel in the lead up to the Persian Gulf War. And then we had the Long Island Railroad shooting. And I remember Paul Cordella calling down to the office saying something's going on and all these people rushing to the station to be part of the coverage to find out what was going on. And so, you know, you've mentioned a few of the events that I had in mind and, and um, not to dwell on it too much, but because it is such an event, you spoke about Lee Harris and, and his coverage on 9-11 and, and I was on the air on 9-11 and so many of us who had graduated were on the air or on TV that that day. What was going on at Hofstra Radio on that Tuesday morning? Do you remember anything in particular? Do you remember reactions? Absolutely. It was, it was a classic example of what I was talking about. When the world was turning upside down, people came to the station to be with people to help try to turn it right side up. And part of that was folks went and did the stories. They talked, they had family members that were fire people. They had uh, folks that, uh, that had family that they couldn't communicate with. Um, we were on the air for, um, I want to say 18 hours, took a break for six hours, and then basically had two or three more days of coverage from the perspective of, WRHU, um, we did live coverage from the top of the uh, 10th floor of the library where you could see this, you know, you could see the city in a panorama and, and see what was happening with the smoke and the blue skies and all that other type of stuff. And we had um, a, a person, um, uh, his name's Mike Corbett, 
who lived on the Lower East Side that actually was live on the air that gave a description as the cloud uh, went past his home and and was doing uh, coverage of of the of what was happening, but also the terror of the unknown about having his home, his apartment, and his family now in the midst of this, in, what we've come to discover was an incredibly toxic mm-hmm. cloud. Um, and, and, and we were covering this. We were covering this and participating in it because it was, it was yet another defining moment in the lives of the folks that were being affected by it. Um, you mentioned the uh, um, the uh, the Long Island Railroad mm-hmm. shooting. You know, um, Carolyn McCarthy lost uh, family members and then became a congressperson who uh, that um, one of her prime messages ever since was gun control. And um, I w- we were doing election night, and election night has been something we have done at, uh, for over 45 years. I've been trying to figure out exactly how many years in a row we've done election night. And as near as I can tell, we've done election night at WRHU for 46 years, every year. And uh, folks like Dave Mock carried the baton uh, for that for years to have it done. Linda Longmire was our analyst uh, for a long, long time. Linda happened to be there the night that... Carol McCarthy um, won her Congress seat. Ran, but won her Congress seat. Nobody expected to do anything, but all of a sudden the story was materializing that it was clear that people were turning out and they were voting for her. And she wasn't even at the Democratic headquarters, she was over in Garden City. So our whole coverage. We had, as many other media places did, shifted over to where Carolyn was, and it was it was a situation of covering a, a terrible situation that had turned uh, into something of somebody standing up so that she could minimize the possibility of it happening again. And and the more people who do this, uh, turning terrible things into uh, into positive things because they feel like they can get involved and 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 be part of the turnaround a lot of that is is one of the standards of being i'm very proud to say it's it's all of all of campus media radio stations uh, call it a non-commercial educational radio stations and and it is something that i have absolutely along with many 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 other people nurtured that we make that one of the standards of what we do here at wrhu turning bystanders into upstanders. It's, it's something that's hard to explain to people who haven't worked in media or in breaking news that when something happens, and oftentimes it's something bad, but not always, is that we grab our microphones or our recorders and we run to the event. And sometimes, like you were saying, it's something bad. Sometimes it's someone wins a congressional seat unexpectedly or achieves something great. And, and we run to that. And that's, that's something that's hard for, for non-broadcasters, I think, to understand. But that's something that's, that, that is part of the history and the spirit of Hofstra Radio, I think. Ed Engels would always tell me that um, we were developing broadcasters, but we were developing citizens first. And um, 
that was something that was near and dear to my heart, but I seldom articulated it. Ed helped me articulate that more strongly and also was a living example of, 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 of embodying that where he, again, he was a hall of fame broadcaster with an extraordinary, extraordinary life as a, and he retired and then he became a hall of fame mentor here at Radio Austin University. And, and at the same time frame, his greatest joy was the fact he had, as he mentioned, children late in life, and both of them came to Hofstra. And Diana uh, is now one of the chief producers for CBS Evening News. And, and Kevin was one of the lead producers for ESPN uh, radio until he tragically passed away at a very young age. But Ed's Ed's joy was the fact that he could uh, participate and relish in in his own family, and at the same time frame, be the 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 the, the foundation of of being a solid citizen that inspired many 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 people, including myself. And and that's that's what we can do here, because the place, as you say, it's hard to explain often to people what it's like to run to the story as opposed to not, I want to say run away from the story, but monitor the story from a distance. Some of us are di driven to be part of history and other folks, and I'm not putting a judgment on this. It's just, it's a reality. You know, other people want to observe history. Some people want to be part of it. Hmm. Um, Going back to, again to the station in the context of the larger world, and this is something that you could not have anticipated, or, or, or at least most of us would not have anticipated, but obviously the situation of lockdown and COVID-19, and, and as that rapidly progressed through world society and, and through the United States, um, you probably had to do some quick thinking about how to not only protect the students and the station, but, but how to manage in a very unexpected uh, environment. Can you talk a little bit about what was going on uh, in early 2020 as things were starting to develop and, and what you did uh, for the station and the students at the time? Um, it, the pandemic and the rapidity from of time that it went from being a distant conversation of something that was yet another nasty thing going on somewhere else in the world to being something that was in our face and affecting uh, everywhere in, in our broadcast area and in our country where um, was something that uh, I never experienced in my lifetime. And I, and, and I don't know how many people that are still alive ever experienced in their lifetime. It, it may have been that things like world wars or something like that 
uh, may have been a similar type thing, but this was a, warm on, a war on our ability to interact. Mm -hmm. and, and yet, um, I am incredibly proud of the station that within a two-week period, we went from a primarily studio-based radio station, 24-7, 365, radio station to being within two weeks a 24 7 365 point to multiple point conduit to the world we did do radio but we weren't able to go into the studio to do it we had to connect from wherever to get into the air chain out through radio but in the same time frame we found many other pathways to go point to multiple point communication to the folks that found value in what we were offering in entertainment and information. And while immediately it was probably 20% of our programming was fresh within uh, weeks after that two weeks to, to re uh, re uh, focus the, the, the technology to be able to do this, I mean, we were doing a little bit of it, but it was total surgery to do it on the on the magnitude to which we were doing um, that within two weeks, we went, you know, to 20 percent fresh programming, mostly news, mostly people calling in. And, you know, it, it's it's a it's a study to, you know, I, I don't know if you knew what Zoom was before uh, the pandemic, mm -hmm. but you know, the vast majority of people had no idea what Zoom was. And and now Zoom and other uh, types of services like that are household items. I mean, they're used on a, on a regular basis. And, and, and we utilize these different things to be able to get from different sites to become a group that put together information and entertainment that we then put out to the world with our own particular spin on it. And, and you know, after literally days, it became like 30% of our programming. And by, the, you know, a month or so, it became about 50% of the programming. And within about two or three months, about 70 to 80% of our programming was, again, fresh and, and, and timely and, and relevant because we were doing all sorts of programs about the impact of the pandemic on on music on 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 right. on, on the impact of the pandemic on uh, on family the impact of the pandemic on 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 folks that uh, that were in and out of school uh it, it, it there i was recently having a conversation with somebody about the folks that it, uh, from last year, the folks that were students that were going into their now junior year, they had done their junior and senior year in high school without being in high school. And then they came into their uh, first and second years of college, in many cases not being in college. Some of that weaned in the second year where they did have some interpersonal classes, but it was still a very different thing because some of the folks still stayed and did distance connectivity and people were going around and wearing masks. You couldn't, you couldn't like, you, you couldn't, you couldn't eat in, in the station, for example, or something like that. You know, I mean, there are so many changes that went on. So you're talking about people with four years of their, their prime rite of passage, the end of high school and the beginning of college where they weren't able to interact personally and what that did to the station was this is a people place first, and you you have a 
a situation in a people place with a studio based first where all the, the vast majority of the stuff we were doing was being done from outside of the station. People weren't interacting with people. They were interacting with the station and the audiences, but they weren't interacting with the other members of the station. And, and, and I'm incredibly hmm. proud of the way that the station responded to it. It was managers that went out of their way to keep a personal contact. There were, um, there were broadcasters that came and, and put you know, at their own angle on, on, on how the pandemic were, was affecting things. Bruce, I'm, I'm sorry um, to interrupt, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, who were some of the people, students or, or otherwise, who were helping you make the decisions and, and make the, uh, the content that was going on uh, during those early days of the, of the lockdown? I'm, I'm, there were so many that I would be very, very, very uncomfortable if I started naming okay. names because, because I would rather not name names than forget somebody and then have to the interview say, Oh my God, how could I possibly forget that person? Because there were so many, it was, it was, it was a, 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 a station, uh, not only, uh, immediate response. It was, it, you know, we have a, significant management turnover every January. Mm -hmm. And then, and then what happens is almost definitely that folks that are in higher uh, 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 management positions here don't go beyond two years because they, you know, it's rare they go beyond one because they're on, you know, into their other things of life, internships and then graduation and, and, and jobs. So there were generations of managers that were dealing with the different levels of, uh, 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 of of taking over, how do you change the sports department from going to the games and broadcasting the games to still covering games which were taking place without audiences, but you can't go there. So how do you do that? You shift back to the you know like sixty years, and and they were doing it by watching television sets and, 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 and doing an audio portion and a broadcast off of watching what went on on TV. And in part, that became how we did the Islanders. And, and it was the same thing for covering news. How would you cover news? You couldn't really go out in, into the community and cover the story. So you had to do the story from, from afar, but at the same time, get it right. And, and, and the music industry was turned upside down in the fact that, you know, musicians were putting out, and you know this, Brian, they were putting out free things on the web just so they could stay connected with their audiences until they could figure out a way to get back into the, into the venues so that they could do live entertainment. And, and, and we were part of that. We were part of the connection that did things like special concerts so that an audience, regardless of what the genre was, could stay connected with their favorite artists, and the artists would come on and have conversations with the audiences through us, so that the audiences could get a piece of normalcy in these times where you didn't know what the heck was going to turn up next. So, I, I respectfully decline <laughs> naming names. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. No, because because there there are there are so many people and and. Uh, um, it, it, it would be hard to, to, to come up with all of them. But one of the things that, that the many speaker, people I've spoken to from the Bruce Avery era 
talk about the training and the preparation in the training class. And one of the things that keeps coming up, and I'm hoping you can explain for those of us who weren't there for these classes, a phrase that keeps coming up is the parachute. <laughs> Which ironically no longer exists. Well, that was my next question. Yes. <laughs> what was um, it? When did it go away? And how did that work? Well, um, it went away when cell phones became a reality. The the parachute was a way that the world could communicate um, in some type of a, a emergency around the station to the management of the station. And it basically was my voicemail okay. where, where people could call in and leave a message. And my, my agreement with the station was, regardless of what day it was, regardless of what state I was in, regardless of whether I was on vacation, although sometimes when I was on vacation, I would turn this over to the operations manager that they would check my voicemail, was that it would be checked um, uh, uh, at first thing in the morning at, at noontime, at like six or seven o'clock and the last thing before bed. That would become like a, a, a four hour window of if some real major thing was happening, the transmitter was down, there was some you know, news story that was uh, breaking. The, the, you know, I mean, we've had incredible uh, interpersonal tragedies here in the years that I've been and that some core members of the station have passed you know, and, 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 and we are a place that people interact. And so there we've had life going on here. Yeah. Life keeps life. And a lot of that stuff came through, um, this person was taken to the hospital, you know, and it would be a maximum of like four hours before someone could, you know, uh, call in the cavalry and, and get a hold of everybody else. Uh, you know, Brian, you go to the station, um, uh, Sue, you run out to the, to the, uh, to the hospital, um, you know, the community volunteers, Basha, can you go get some flowers, you know, or whatever that, whatever that looked like, right. you know, the, and, and so, um, that was the agreement because at the time it was really the only way to, to stay in immediate, um, or semi-immediate communication was something that, you know, four hours, from at sometimes there had been major things that had happened in those four hours that it still was too slow. Right. Then we got a parachute and that became the beeper. We actually had a beeper, which was a huge technological step forward in the fact that somebody had to carry the beeper. Vast majority of the time it was me until we started realizing that, you know, it was actually better for the chief engineer to carry the beeper because oftentimes that, you know, even if I could get to the station, I wouldn't necessarily be the person that could do anything about it. It would often be the engineer would be a much better person to get there. And I would have had to get to the station and get the engineer over because I wouldn't know how to, you know, repatch the, the, uh, the transmitter with the primary transmitter went down. We used to have a transmitter, uh, a gauge transmitter that was affectionately called a Aggie mm -hmm. that actually functioned and you could use it as a backup transmitter well into nearly the end of the 20th century. And it had been purchased probably in the 1950s. I don't know exactly when it had been purchased, but it was, it was a perfectly functional but old transmitter we had as a backup. I couldn't figure that out to do the type of thing. But then, and, and this is like a, a, like a chronicle of, of, of technologies and communication ways that have kind of gone 
had had their moment in the sun and then disappeared. And then cell phones became mm-hmm. a reality. And people don't really connect. I mean, you're 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 old enough now, Brian, to really remember the the advent of uh, of of what a world changing thing it was to have personal communication devices. Yeah, I was I was thinking about this. That uh, it was a is a sort of an offhand question. Is that when when you came to Hofstra, did you have an email address? I still use rhubma at hofstra.edu because it was the first email that I ever really had. Yeah. I had had one at the University of New Haven before I came here, but it was one of those things that it really wasn't used all that much. Right. But rhubma, the way that they originally had set it up, um, was at the university. They the place that you worked. In my case, it was RHU, and then your initials was the way they set up emails at. at the university i've now that's going to be one of the things about retirement that's going to be hard to get adjusted to because i've used that as a because i'm the job is 24 7 365 i've a lot of people have communicated with me through that on on you know other things and and not just business stuff of life it's been a primary uh big a primary uh um email that i'm going to have to give up as as at the time of retirement and actually, I'll tell you a kind of a funny story about that was when originally I was assigned it, they kind of messed up because it was supposed to be the place that they work at, at, at Hofstra right. and then your initials and they messed it up. So my first email was R-H-U-M-B-A, and not B-M-A, which is my right. initials. So I had had Rumba at <laughs> that's, Hofstra.edu. That's the one I remember, it's, yeah. It is yeah. really cool. <laughs> you know, for a radio station and music, I had Rumba, uh, and, you know, and, 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 and I didn't tell them that that wasn't what it was supposed to be. About three or four years later, they realized they had messed up the lettering, and I changed from Rumba to Rumba. And and that was nowhere near as cool, but I've had it ever since. That's that's, that's very <laughs> funny. I had, I had forgotten that, but I, I distinctly remember that as an email. And so that's that's part of what I wanted to, to talk to you is about the change in technology over the time that you've been there. And again, we could spend days talking about individual decisions and upgrades and, and things like that. But when you arrived and, and we were down in the basement of Memorial Hall, we were still cutting tape and splicing it together and reel-to-reel machines, and, and, and DAT machines were relatively new to us. And I guess uh, between then and, you know, the last couple of years where you said you've got multiple points of connectivity and distance and so on and so forth, how have you tried to manage that change in technology over time? Um, Brian, that's an incredibly core question that I could talk about in seven part series, but I will, I I will give you a synopsis. The way that I, the way I have been part of the station responding to that question is that excellence often succeeds. Excellence often succeeds. If you produce quality programming, production value uh, of interest to audience members of value to community, 
you can find ways of getting that out to the world so that you can connect from a point to multiple point audience members. That will remain the same regardless of the technology. And we're starting to experience it in another one, which is, you know, how many podcasts are out there now? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of them. Yep. And how many podcasts really connect with audiences? Some. And oftentimes what that is, is that they're done by people that have drive and passion and knowledge and perspective and talent and, and the creative out thing to make it so that you want to get more. You meaning the audience, you wants to get more, whether it's informational or entertainment. And excellent often becomes successful. So we nurture people to produce whatever they're producing as well as they possibly can produce it. But the idea that how you deliver it is going to change. Why do we do that? Because it changes here, and it certainly is going to change for folks outside of here as they go through pre-professional development. The next part of it is is that... um, the arena in higher education of, 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 of doing pre-professional development with participants, on a corporate uh, level, folks are always trying to figure out where they're going to go, what audience are they going to ta- target, how are they going to go in the future. But most of the time, it's real time. You know, What's the technology du jour that we can utilize to best serve our audiences? In the case of higher education, we not only have to make decisions on the technology, we have to make decisions in advance of what we're going to train people so as the technology gets to there, our people are ready to not only embrace it, but to go outside of here and land and excel at jobs. So we're, we're like doubly, we're not only trying to predict the technology, we're trying to train people in, in what's out there and what will be out there so that they can go outside and have a competitive advantage against their, against the, you know, because of the decision that they made to come here and participate at WRHU, they're going up against people that are out there from the different schools, the Emersons, the, the Syracuses, and on and on and on and on. So we, we not only have to live with the reality of the, of the real time, we have to do a, a darn good job of predicting the future. Did you ever get pushback from the university about investing in technology or, or the particular kind of technology? Well, pushback isn't the right word. Mm. It, the, I, I never had an experience where someone that when I made a good idea about uh, within the budget that had been allotted to us and maybe some additional budget that we went and fundraised for in whatever way it was, that um, this is what I perceive that we need this is done so that we can serve audiences to the best of our abilities nowadays and it can be there so that we can always say that our 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 students are as current as they possibly can be in terms of uh of dealing with um what they will deal with in in the technology in the professional world is to make the swing from it so that makes our people more industry ready and more marketable when I've made that case and we've you know done all our research, I've never I've never received a situation where it wasn't no. 
you know, I'm, and I understand all the things I had to do. I had to do the research. I had to come up with ideas. I had to you know, make sure the budget was there to handle it. And did I make some some decisions or did we make some decisions over the years? You mentioned that machines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we made an investment at that machines. They had a life cycle of about three years. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they were a technology that was bypassed. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a thing called RDS. RDS was a thing where you, you it was a digital display for a radio station. You get a little bit of information that would show up. Besides the station you're listening to, 88.7 FM, you know, WRHU. Right, the name of the song something or something, that, yeah. The name of something like that. And it sounded like a great idea. That never even got off the ground, but we invested in it because we thought it was the place it was going to go. And that was basically defunct within a very short period of time, two years at the most. Now, fortunately, we've never really gone into something in a way that it crippled us um, because we always took a conservative approach towards it where we would find what we could do and do it intelligently. And then and then as we as we got more into it and see that this was then we would grow it. Um, And so we never had real catastrophes of inventing studios that were basically useless a couple of years down the road. We've had studios that have been very effective for for decades and we augmented them and then occasionally basically got the, gutted them out and come up with completely new technology. But you mentioned something I want to make sure I, I, I say um, that, uh, that um, you were mentioning um, doing um, the training class. You yeah. were mentioning in the training class that, um, uh, that in, when you were here, you were doing cut and splice editing on analog tape. Yeah. And and you were rocking the reels, and and you were making quality radio with uh, uh, sometimes scotch tape hanging threads of stuff uh, from different portions of equipment, putting it back together, putting it into the air chain, and getting it out again with entertainment and information to the world, which was a standard that had been there for radio for decades. I still in the training class. Um, come up in the training class and hold up a splicing block. Mm. I have it right behind me here in my office. And I hold this thing up that's about four or five inches wide, long and about two inches wide. And it has a, you know, a, a narrow gap in the middle of the thing and some, some, some places that are like and lines and you know what it, they look like in different, in different angles. And I, and I, and I, I hold it up and I say, this was the standard of production for probably the first 60 years of radio. Amen. And people look at me like I have two heads. Right. And I said, what are you talking about? And I said, when I first was at WRHU and the training class was starting, we were teaching this in the training class as the standard of creating something that was a self-contained story and putting it into the air chain. And this was a standard that stood with radio for decades. And then now we have the same concept where you can go into a studio in a box and you can do uh, point and click and pick up, pick up a piece of information that used to be a piece of analog tape that you know was, was hanging off of the, whatever you were hanging it off of. With, with tape on it and then put back into an organized hole. Right. But you're now doing that inside of a box where it's digitally, and it also has a redo button yep. 
where you can you can hit the button and say erase that without realizing that you've cut a piece of tape and cut it in the wrong spot so that it is irretrievable. And I said, this is the way that this is going. And we're now having more and more of the type of things um, that allow us to be creative um, in ways that we never anticipated. Um, you know, audio processors for voice and, and performance were really starting to come in to be a vo in vogue about the mid 90s, which is where I, you know, a few of those pieces of machinery, we actually bought one. Uh, about two years after I came here, which allows you to you know, put um, EQ uh, your voice. Nowadays, all that stuff is a part of the software package of the multiple software packages that are in the studio in a box. Right. So not only you can do that with voice, you can also do that with different parts of ambient sound and everything else as you grow. So technology, it, when it's used as a tool towards the goal of producing excellent programming, then you're preparing people to think of it as what it is. It is the tool du jour until something else comes along to replace it. But the thing that really is the standard is the product that's putting out about sharing the story with the audience. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely part of it. Even though I'm I'm editing and producing this on a laptop computer, the lessons that uh, I picked up in those days about pacing, about space, about uh, sound, they they still apply, and that's that's still applicable. Um, I, before this, in my mind, this makes sense, but it might seem like a like a, a segue, uh, jumping out of things, but. As you were talking, it made me think about what was going on in your head, what was going on in your mind when the Islanders first approached Hofstra Radio about broadcasting. <laughs> because in my mind, it ties together with technology, it ties together with training, it ties together with, you know, thinking on your feet. And then here's this professional sports organization saying, hey, what, what do you guys think about this? Um, John Mullen, our operations manager for the last 17 years, and I um, laugh about that very question as we now are, are negotiating season number 13 in a row when our original uh, contract was 10 games and we weren't sure that we would get two. We, John told me the other day how many shows we've done over 12 years. I think it's 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 in the it's in the 700 regular season and playoff games. Wow! It it it, it was unheard of for a campus radio station or to do any of the major. It, it, it's never been done before. But we had four 10 games, and that became 41 games, which became 82 games, and then 82 games plus the playoffs. And we've now in the number one media market in the world, we've managed to use all the stuff that we do here, which is the turnover where our folks get really good, but if they become the producer of our Islanders broadcast They're they're going to be landing jobs and, and getting out of here. That's what we do when our, when people get good, they leave. But the original thing and what John and I laugh about, um, folks come here on a regular basis um, and, and pitch their ideas about, things that they could potentially bring to the table for Radio Hofstra University. And 
oftentimes what they're pitching is they're pitching that they would love to get their hands on some time on the radio station, um, but have the students sort of be their gophers and they become the stars. Right. And, you know, I've heard that particular variation of a pitch hundreds of times over the years. And that's just not what we do. You know, we, we, we are a, a student operated radio station and our students come first and, and they need, if they're going to be involved in something else, there needs to be a reason and a place that they can get involved. And so I, I usually listen to the people with respect. And then I, I, I explain to them, you know, there are a couple of things that have to happen if we're going to, you know, think outside the box and, and you know, do some, pursue some other kind of program. Well, the folks from the Islanders came over and they said, you know, well, what, what are those things? And, and I'm sitting in my office and I told them, I said, number one, there has to be student participation. That's, that's non-negotiable. And that means not only, you know, bringing coffee, that means producing, that means covering things in the locker room. That means at the beginning, we were actually doing the play-by-play for three or four years. We have to be involved because that's what we are. If we can't have that, then it's a deal breaker. We'd love to support you, but the students have to be involved. The second thing is, is that there needs to be a way to, um, uh, when, when we do something new, we're often preempting other shows that sometimes are revenue generating shows, sometimes are real loyal, some things that we have to carry example being, you know, we are, we chew, we've been the voice of Hofstra sports for decades and, you know, and we can't preempt a, a men's basketball game to do an Islanders game. Mm-hmm. We just can't do it. We can't do it because we're, you know, we're proud of the fact we're the voice of Hofstra sports. And, and then the, and then the third thing is, is that there, there needs to be uh, uh, a way that, um, that, uh, that we are partners so that, that, that there is something where whoever we do partnerships with us, promotes what we're doing so that we can help market our students outside of here. In other words, we need not only to take credit of doing this, we need the partners to, to also help us publicize that. Um, And, and usually in one of those three things, the people that have come here with ideas say, you know, well, you know, that's all very nice, but you know, we can't do that. You know, and you know, I said, well, you know, those things are non-negotiable, and you know, and, and you know, if you find a way that we could do it, let's let's talk again. Um, the analysts looked at us and they said, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> and, and and John John and I kind of looked at each other, saying, um, "Oh boy, <laughs> oh boy! One, this has never been done before. Uh, two, this is in a a a a." a, 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 a a, a, a brand setting opportunity that's going to require an incredible output of energy, talent, and passion, and and and, and input from not only the management of the, of the place but also the participants. We're going to have to do this, and we're going to have to do this right because the whole world is watching and listening. And and it's an incredible, an incredible, incredible honor and joy that we have stayed with the Islanders through the move to the Barclays Center, 
the move from the Barclays Center back to the Coliseum, the move from the Coliseum to the stadium at Belmont. And it's one of the few things in their entire organization that has moved along with them over the 12 years in the moves. It, it's an incredible honor. And, and we have uh, picked up a, a network. We, 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 are the, we are the foundation of serving three stations and also three you know, the serious radio and, and the NHL web feed, you know, we've been doing this for years and now, and, and each year there are people that line up that would like to be part of it and corporations that line up that would be part of it. But we have, and at some point it will end all things in broadcasting mm-hmm. end at some point. But again, this is one of those situations where excellence often, um, often brings success. And we have, we have preached excellence. Um, we have preached excellence in, in doing this. And it has been an unbelievable honor. And so many people have participated and received um, a jump start in their, it, it hasn't all been sports. I mean, there's been the news people that have done this for the ability to have storytelling pieces for their uh, demo tape and, and all sorts of different things. And it's been incredibly humbling that we've managed to continue this. And it all started out one time in my office where I laid down, you know, this is what has to happen to be consistent with what we're doing here. And a far uh, seeing uh, group of leaders, uh, the now passed on Charles Wong being one of them saying, okay, great. This sounds fine. We can do this. And, and we've been able to, to grow it and keep it. And, and we know that it's inevitable at some point that it's going to end because you've been a broadcaster, Brian, yeah. for years and you know that, there are runs, you know, cheers ended, friends ended, uh, you know, I mean, they, they have a beginning, a middle end, but we're not going to let this go, you know, lightly without, you know, working towards making sure that it has been everything, take it lightly to work towards it being something that is, um, stays with us as, as a source of, of something that's extraordinary. And, um, and, 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 and we're humbled by the fact that we've been able to do it. We have talked about so much today, and there's so much yet to talk about, and I'm hopeful that we can we can do another version of this or, or maybe another couple. Um, we've talked about training. We've talked about development, technology, world events, sports, news, music. We've covered a lot of bases here today, and, and obviously in your 29 years at Hofstra Radio, you've, you've seen and done a lot. And this is not fair, and I'm not going to... Uh, I, I don't expect, uh, uh, well, I do expect a lot. I'm going to, I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to put my expectations here. I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to put you on the spot and say in, in, in a handful of words in, in 10 or 12 words, you can use adjectives or nouns, uh, or, or, or feelings, uh, how, what, what words, what ideas would you use to sum up? your time at Hofstra Radio? It has been an extraordinary journey where people have invited me and us to be part of their lives. WRHU is a people place first, and it has been the honor and the joy of my personal and professional life one of them for sure, family, my own children and the other type of things. But it has been such an honor to be part of the folks that have trusted 
Hofstra and WRHU to be part of their lives and that we have been there as much as we possibly could be for them. And then what has happened is folks have evolved from being mentor mentees to being colleagues and friends for life. It, 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 it's just, it's impossible to express how much of a joy and honor that is. I, I think you just did. Bruce, this has been uh, a real honor and a real pleasure. And, and I sincerely mean it when, when I, I, I know there's more stories uh, and I have more questions. Uh, let's do this again. Like when Brian, when Brian Gruby uh, asked uh, Christy Briggs over our airwaves and they were driving around and, uh, and he asked her to marry uh, him. Uh, he, he was a salesperson for CBS and, you know, he said he had to listen to an ad and he took an ad out on CBS to ask Christy to marry him. And, 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 and we, we had like one of the studios made up like an Italian restaurant. Oh my gosh. And, uh, or when, when, uh, at the 50th anniversary, our sports director slid across the dance floor on his knees and asked our station manager to marry him. And they now have five children. <laughs> there, 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 should, there should be some sort of official accounting of, of the number of, of marriages and, and relationships and kids that came out of Hofstra Radio. I'm sure it would be, be quite a lot. It is quite a lot. I know that to be true. Um, and, and I know a goodly number of them, but I don't have a bloody clue of, of all of them. No. You know, it, it, it's, there's some really special moments multiple generations of the history of, of, the, of the station. On that note, to be continued. <laughs>